You're listening to Are We Done Yet? with host Rob Anthony. It's easier to model values and behavior than it is to sit and think through your own programming and look at the coding and actually do the work to reprogram. Joining me today to dig a little deeper into the how and why we protest the way we do, assuming that there's something wrong with it, and how it's shaping the future of activism is none other than the author of no less than three best-selling books, TED Talk keynote speaker and trusted performance coach to athletes and actors and Fortune 500 executives, Farzana Jafar-Jerez. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. How are how are you doing these days with all of the things that are that are that are going on? I know people look to you for for inspiration and 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 aspiration. Um, what are the people around you sharing as far as their mental health goes? Yeah, um, anxiety, a lot of uncertainty and instability. I think that people are expressing more than ever um, stress and fear and anxiety towards the economic factors in the world. I think that with the nature of how polarizing um, our world has become, I would say it kind of started with Trump and then vaccination. And now we have Israel and Palestine. And I feel like people, whatever side they took, it wound up lessening their social circle. And then the pandemic came out and then that narrowed it down a little bit more. And now there's Israel and Palestine and it's like narrowed down a little bit more and people are actually cutting friendships off. They're cutting off social circles. They're, you know, I think we're still kind of tolerating each other in the workplace. I don't even know, or accepting. I would love to say that we're accepting each other in the world, but I feel like it's tolerance. It's like the, you know. Yeah, I feel feel like tolerance is, is more what I'm seeing these days. I don't know if, if the way the um, Black Lives Matter movement took place during COVID that helped us kind of mm-hmm. learn this new craft of, of, of how do we engage and how do we politicize and, and how do we participate in these causes. But I feel almost like our learnings of that process, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, COVID, paved the way for how we're managing our, our discussions, our civil discourse now. Well, and and I think that you, you touch on something and this idea of bullying people who don't get it being socially acceptable as opposed to educating and yeah. as opposed to having discourse because there is there's an aspect where you don't know what you don't know and people don't know that they don't know. And so like I I take this example. I was I was going through Fort Langley and there was this woman and I was just like, you look amazing. I love your outfit. So stylish. And she turned to me and she looked startled and pleased. And she said, oh, well, I saw you and I thought that you were very attractive for a black woman. What? Yeah. So in my mind... I knew that there were like so many things that went through my head in that moment. And she first, I don't think she expected to have a conversation with me. I don't think that she thought that I would ever talk to her. Second, um, 
I don't think she has talked to a person of color or she would know that I wasn't black and that I'm actually Indian. Right. Right. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know whether it was worth it to correct her or not or to let it go because she genuinely meant it as a compliment, but she didn't know the inherent racial issues in what she had said because I didn't say to her, oh yeah, you're so stylish for an older elderly person. <laughs> like she was probably 70, right? Like, but I didn't say that. I just said, you look great. I love your outfit. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and I just think it's funny. Like, cause would that have been the way to handle it? Do we, do I bully her? Do I shame her? Do I, you know, and maybe if it was, if it was not just a passing by in the street and everyone's not on their way to do something, you might actually have a conversation with someone, but do they want to learn? Is that on like deaf ears? Like, how do we handle this? And is that person meant to be bullied because they're maybe sheltered or they just don't know what they don't know? Like, how do we handle that? Like, I can still take the good out of it. I can take that she meant a compliment to me. And there's like an aspect where, because we didn't engage, because there was no level of education, she's now going home and being like, I complimented a black lady today. (laughs) And she looked really pleased with herself for actually saying that. And it was like this, this moment of like, yeah, it just, it just left me with so many questions. And I think with black lives matter, it became a thing of like, get with the program or else. And we started to bully each other. And then I feel like it, it transcended to levels of government and media where now we're bullying each other on media and it's like one way or another and it's one way or another and that's it. Yeah. Instead of understanding each other's views. I think that's one of the things that I had to definitely um, parse out during that movement was one reconciling the fact that I really wasn't even aware of my own blackness. Like I wasn't aware that I was as black as I actually was I never really identified with the plight of the common black person. Uh, And so I was one of those folks that definitely looked at allyship as being performative because it was coming from people who, Mm. you know, weren't black. Ergo, they shouldn't be supporting me. And I kind of learned that for me anyway, um, the value of being supported minus that educational bit of, do you know that I'm actually not black or I'm mixed or I'm, I'm Punjabi meant less to me than the idea that somebody was at least making an effort. It might not have been the best effort, but for me, that was, that was some, some, some solace. I think caring is one thing and I can take the caring. I just think that wanting caring is the first step. And there's like a second step where like, and you meant you use the word performative and is it because you're genuinely a good person and you didn't know something and you're really nervous that you didn't know that and it's a form of masking where you want the world to know, hey, I actually am an ally because I care. And so they're performative because they're masking that their their embarrassment that they didn't know that before. And I think that that's a bit of an aspect for some people mm-hmm. or they were shown maybe some short sight like or some some areas that they were not that were not visible to them and they were maybe a little bit embarrassed and they felt like they had they were defensive 
Like I encountered a lot of conversations where people were defensive about it. And I'm like, well, nobody's saying you specifically did this, but all the ask is that you have this conversation and just have some acknowledgement of what we go through, you know? That's an interesting perspective because one of the things I wanted to talk about was, Mm -hmm. and I mentioned earlier, is there a risk in simply going along to go along without knowing what it is that you're advocating for? And I thought about that from the context of it's a risk to potentially the cause, but it's also a risk to, to, to me, the person that you're engaging with. What is the marginalization aspect of you not understanding? And, 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 you know, this is, this is, this is my fear of coming on a show like this and talking about something when I know that there's so much I don't know. So am I giving an opinion based on anything? I never even sought to be a thought leader. I just wanted to help people be happy. (laughs) Like that's my reason for existing. And like, that means like helping people shift their mindset. And, and now we're in this world where, our mindsets are so rigid that we're not able to be open to each other's mindset. And that's what's, that's what I'm really seeing as the issue. Where, where does that, where does that rigidity come from? Cause I don't remember it being that way. People have always been, you know, firm on their decisions, but I've never seen, even in the confines of, of your own social circle, there's been such yeah. rigid is the perfect word. Why are we so unflinching these days? I believe that it is because of the things that would have given us certainty and stability and security. And in the face of not having certainty, stability, and security, like there's like, they say there's like six human needs, right? The first one is certainty, stability, and security. The second one is variety, change, right? Um, The third one is significance. So Mm. your place in the world, who you are as a being, like your, your, your sense of self. Right. The fourth is um, what's the fourth love and connection. Right. So your relationships. The fifth is growth. And the sixth one is contribution, giving back. And so if you look at these six human needs and that's the way that Tony Robbins would describe my one, my, one of my first right. mentors, um, you look at those human needs. And if you were to pull from that, I would say that right now, People are terrified because they don't have that basic human need. Instead of stability, they have stagnation, right? Instead of, instead of security, they have, you know, financial structures that are, instead of, you know, instead of security, they have financial structures and tax and inflation and like food costs almost doubling, if not more in certain place aspects like the cost of living changing. And, you know, for the last few years, you can't make plans right. because circumstances keep changing and things that you thought were certain are no longer certain. And if we haven't done enough self-work, then, and I don't care how much self-work you do, like <laughs> there comes a point in time where you still need certain things. Like you still need to know that you have food and that you have shelter. Mm-hmm. And that's something that in North America we've taken for granted for a very, very long time. And I think right now we've been talking about it for at least a decade that our generation and younger will never own homes. But 
to see it happening, to live through it, to have this much uncertainty. I think what happens when people are triggered and things become so uncertain, we actually re revert back to original beliefs. So you do all this kind of work in your life to become your own person. And like, I know people who were, were raised to be extremely religious, even oppressively so, and they broke through that. And then the last few years, things became so stressful that they actually reverted back to their original base programming because that felt certain and secure to there, them. There was We've structure. never seen so much of a return to religion than we have in the last few years. Right. This ability to know oneself precludes the need for that type of security, right? You, you become your own sense of security. Yes. And then absent that, which I think is the state that we're in now, absent that really knowing ourselves, are we looking for that? in other causes and other people's is our celebrity addiction, uh, which is going through the roof, all part of that lack of a knowledge of oneself. So what I'm suggesting is that I think therefore I am doesn't mean your thoughts and beliefs are who you are. It's the reminder that you exist, right? The fact that you have a thought and that you can perceive that you're having thoughts means that you exist. And so for me, it's this idea that I am a consciousness. That is my constant. Everything else around me is a choice. Now, that's not to say I didn't get put into the, like that I'm not a consciousness in this earth suit, that it doesn't come with certain programming, that I don't have subconscious interactions with the world. I do. But my process of like meditation, self-reflection, journeying is about making sure that it is my consciousness choosing more and more and more right as i go through my life choosing what i believe and i think to answer your question about obsession with celebrity i think that we are modeling people that we think are good people that have it together that we want to be like because there is your consciousness there's the earth suit there's all these subconscious programming that comes with it and like what it means to be a, a woman, a cisgendered woman, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever that means, my roles, a good daughter, this, like all the other person things, a good person, um, ambitious, hardworking, but still kind, but still like all of these things. And then there is the values that we have, right? Did society give you the value? Did you learn it from your family, your community? Um, or did you choose that? And I think it comes down to this is how children learn. Like you, they, they mimic their parents. Like I watched my nephew come home and he'd be like from school and he'd be like, oh, yeah, such a tough day. My <laughs> neck is so sore. Yeah, so such a stressful day at work. And I'm like, oh, yeah, so tough in that sandbox. And he's like, yeah, I got sand in my shoes. <laughs> like you're so cute. But like, yeah, like yeah. I want those problems. Right, right. Like I want those problems. But he mimicked, right? Like it was that subconscious mimicry. And I think there's something to be said for escapism mm -hmm. and mimicry. Like I think we're looking up to people because it's a form of a combination of the two. Like if we can emulate them, then we're living that life. And then our life that we're actually in isn't really like we can pretend it away. Right. And that's a, that's so. <laughs> if I get the new clothes or like. Is it the nipple bra that just came out? Did you hear about that? There's a 
There's a nipple bra? Kim Kardashian, her company Skims, made a nipple bra. So you put the bra on, apparently it makes you bigger, but it has nipples on the top of the bra. So when you wear your shirt on Fake top nipples? of it. Yeah. It's just got the little bumps. And so, and so I like, there's like a part of it. Like everybody's like, I need that. I need that because I'm going to wear it. I'm going to be more attractive. I'm going to be, you know, this, I'm going to. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to look better. I'm going to be living that life. And then I'm kind of like, and on some subconscious level, maybe there's an aspect of like, and now I'm living this, this type of life. Like that's the whole point of marketing, right? Is, is to sell us something, to sell us a feeling. The seeking for validation or value in external things. Um, It just reminded me of, uh, of something that a friend told me the other day when I was sharing that I was a little unsettled about going to the protests. I was starting to see behaviors and things that I wasn't comfortable with and should I, I shouldn't go. And she said very bluntly, I think we need to sit in our own shit before we start taking to the streets and suggesting that we know other people's um, processes. And I love that because what I did see and what I see online is a lot of maybe well-intentioned people saying the things that are, that are being said, but I sense that there's a lack of understanding of, of the topic in hand. And I also understand, I also feel that there's a lack of actual conviction for the cause that they're behind. And I just, I just wish that I could take comfort in the fact that performative allyship was like it was back in the Me Too and the Black Lives Matter movement, where it was still because you genuinely cared about the cause. But I'm seeing more and more that it seems to be a platform for somebody to find value in something because they're not finding it internally. Can it not be both? I mean, we've created these social media platforms. We've now created a powerful marketing tool. I, I'll be honest, I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for, for work. And I'm, I'm bad at it. I, sh- I, should be, I should be posting more because that's where people are, right? I should be posting more content. I, I genuinely feel bad that I don't. But, I, you know, we have introversion in common to, to the extreme. And I find that yeah. it's like, it's, I, I have like a capacity of how many clients I can see in a day, talks that I can do, and then also do social media. And that's tough for me. Right. And I don't get to film the client session and pull clips out of it, you know? Yeah. So... I think that, and if I didn't have it, if I didn't have that in my life, I wouldn't have an account at all. And I think though, younger generations are being raised to think that external validation is necessary. Now there's an aspect of child rearing that is social consciousness of guilt and shame that is part of like, oh, that's not good. I should feel bad remorse right right? we're supposed to have remorse for hurting another person right now i just don't know like needing likes needing likes or being told that this is normal or being raised to think that's normal posting selfies and thinking that's like that's it's an it's part of normal culture now right whereas 10 years ago, I think it was weird. I don't even right. know if we had selfie cameras 10 years ago. Uh, I'm old, but I don't remember. I don't remember. I, I feel, yeah, I, I think we did. <laughs> I think we did. But it, but it certainly wasn't, it yeah. wasn't an aspect of our daily lives. Right? I mean, the word selfie itself wasn't a thing and now it's just mainstream. I think it's made its way into the Webster's Dictionary as an actual bona fide English word. Yeah. Yeah. But, okay. 
And and when you say Webster's Dictionary, just digress for a second. We are an evolve. We are evolving. We are looking at ourselves with more scrutiny than ever before. And the more, like you know, it's it as our world has become so international, and we're able to consume other cultures through these devices that we have and have access to things here, and we see the differences, and we have the ability to learn from our differences. And everything's changing and we're looking at our language systems and our language systems don't fit what's happening, right? Just look at gender pronouns, right? As people have permission to explore their identity and how they wish to identify themselves, we're coming up with new designations, new names, new terminology. And I think there's like over a hundred Right. It's a lot terms and it's a lot and it's a lot to learn. I don't know them all, but I do know that I'm willing to learn and I'm an ally. Right. I'm willing yeah. to learn. I may not be fully up to date right now, but I also know that. And that's what I get back to your original point is that. How do we create a system for something that is evolving if we're not willing to change the system, even if it's just the language that we use? Right. Systems were created for us to organize the chaos of this world. And I think our systems aren't applying anymore in the same way. And that's why we're having such anxiety. That's why we're having such uncertainty. Because even the categories of how we organize our minds is being threatened. I mean, think about how hard it is when your phone does an OS update and now you don't know how to use the buttons properly and the shortcuts aren't the same and you get stressed out until you adapt to the change. But if that's happening constantly, it's extremely unsettling. And there's only so many levels of change that each person can handle. And let's say you're on the spectrum for autism, you're not going to be able to handle as many of those changes as someone else might be able to. Yeah. And it's it's to varying degrees. And so here we are. I think you touched on such a I think such a key part of the shift as well is Mm -hmm. that I'm a little older. So I do remember a a time when regardless of what it was that was coming in that was new, there was a learning curve. There was an acceptable learning curve to these new things. It could be from VHS to to tape or something as monumental as uh, women's rights. But there was a there was time for us to all evolve into this change management. I mm-hmm. find now that the expectation from people requiring change, rightfully requiring change, mm-hmm. is that it's almost immediate. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a frustration with people that want to be allies, desperately so, yeah. but can't keep up because we're still adapting to the last one. Yeah. 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 Is there an impetus on us to to be allies, but then also remind People that this these things take time. I mean, let's 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 be honest. We're we're having a Black Lives Matter movement some forty years after the civil rights movement, right? We're still having we're still we're still having a, a Me Too discussion long after Jane Fonda and Gloria Steinem. So these processes take time, and we still haven't figured them out. And I just mm-hmm. I have a challenge adapting and almost losing patience sometimes with I'm just figuring out the pronouns. Give me some time before I ramp up into the next one. Yeah. But there's such judgment and such personal attachment to these. I think they're, they're just causes that the rush to get there is blocking adaptation. Any thoughts on that? 
you know, as you, as we said, like everybody integrates things at a different pace. And I see that even with clients, like I have clients that need to come every three months <laughs> or they come once a year because what they did in the one session took a year to unpack right, and integrate. And then they come back and they're like, yeah, that was great. I've been really good all year. Now I'm dealing with this. And then I have some people who are like, I want to do it all in three days. Right. So I think that, you know, it's 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 just like the education system, like not everyone was built for the school system, like it wasn't built for the ADHD student. Right. Right. And so there's so many, so many different things in that regard where I just see that it is an evolution and it's pendulum swinging too, right? It's like this came out, we paid attention, like like you mentioned Jane Fonda and Gloria Steinem and like, it's like, okay, here's a little touch of awareness and like, oh my God, that's so terrible, but it's just them. And then let's just like, right. let's just pretend away for a little while and it's like, oh no, it's everybody. Right. And everybody to the point where I actually think that some people some people were kind of taken out that were maybe unfairly taken out, yeah. <laughs> you know, during the me too movement. And I think it's dangerous to say that because I always want to believe women. Like I always want to support anyone who is not safe of course, and who doesn't feel safe or has been threatened. And, and for women to come forward with anything like some of those women never get another job again. Nobody wants to hire them. Right. Like it's, it's so terrifying to share that and so I do want to support women and then what about what about the people who got drunk at their Christmas party and made out and then felt embarrassed about it the next day yeah right it's it's I don't know what's fair and what's not and it's so hard to look at each thing case by case and I think that that's the challenge of what's going on is that we sometimes need these big, big mass movements like our Me Too movement to actually start talking about things again. And then again, look at how, like, we're not talking about Me Too anymore. It's gotten really quiet. We're not talking about Black Lives Matter anymore. Like, that was all 2019 and 2020. Yeah. And like, I, I think I think that's where the concern for the performative part, yeah. I was in it because... Thinking back to my youth, I was involved with my parents in the Greenpeace marches across the Broad Street Bridge and the no nukes marches because it meant something to my family and it still does. And so that's something that persists. It's not a lost awareness. The awareness these days, as you said, we're not talking about these things anymore. So yeah. why are we really, I say we in general, but why are we really participating to this degree? But we need to be talking about them. I don't think those conversations can ever go away. I think, you know, we we have to have the all lives matter conversation, which means we have to have the black lives matter conversation, which means we have to have the me right. too conversation, which means we have to have the indigenous conversation, which means we have to talk about colorism, which means we have to talk about all of these things. It's just the way we're talking about them. It's not inclusive. It's not respectful. It's not, you know, there's, you know, you, you look at, the Middle East, you look at that whole area and it's tri-Abrahamic fates. They all had the same origin. Like when you think about the land that is Israel and Palestine, like that land there belonged to all those faiths, Muslims, Christians, 
and Jewish people, mm-hmm. right? It's 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 just interesting to see how I think in there are places where talking about respect and tolerance is permitted. And then the very people who talk about respect and tolerance are like, but it, not that. And that's a, that's a frightening thing again you these know? days, because to your point, you yeah. did see people losing their jobs in the Me Too movement for speaking out. You see people losing their yeah. jobs and their potential career statuses yeah. or their acting roles yeah. because they've said something that doesn't quite align. Look, there are people right now who are still losing their jobs for being gay in the acting industry because they're they're co-stars don't their co-stars or the leads don't want to have to act with someone who's gay. I did. A, I was asked to do a, we were asked to do a report in in high school and we were asked to write a report about uh, what we thought was wrong with society. And so I very flippantly wrote <laughs> report that said there's zero value in talking about or worrying about the fact that right now it's racism because in 10 years it'll be the Jews and then it'll be the gays and then we'll get bored talking about that and we'll go back to the blacks and the Jews and I feel like we don't have the attention span to give any of these movements the just cause and I think it's exactly what you said we we're focusing in these very narrow bubble of Black Lives Matter um, and to me, when I, when I first heard that slogan, just as a marketing professional and a, a person that has, a, I think, a sense of how to word things to, to get a message across, my first thought was the moment that that phrase is out there, the only organic response is, but all lives matter. And then you lose the narrative because we all jumped on this, this call to action, yeah. which really wasn't thought out that clearly. And you might say the same thing for the expression from the river to the sea. There is a lack mm-hmm. of knowledge as to what that actually means or what it could mean. Yeah. And it's being repeated by people that don't know one way or the other. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what happens in, in kind of the spiritual world. It's it's like all you're everyone's just a soul. We have to go from that perspective. And again, while I get that, it's still it's spiritual bypassing. What does right? that mean, spiritual bypassing? It means not addressing the issue at hand by going over here. And just being up in the clouds and being like, but we're all light. It's okay. And I love you and I love your soul. And, right. and it's like, it's like, it's like, it's, it's negating. Like someone's coming to you with like the racial persecution or the, you know, the sexual harassment that they dealt with or all of these things. And they're like, you know, but we're all spiritual up here, you know. And I've seen that with a lot of like spiritual healer type people where they're just like, yeah, you know, but everything just happens for a reason. So I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm fine. Right. I'm fine. And I'm like, you are so not fine. <laughs> You're so, there's nothing fine yeah. <laughs> about you right now. Like, and so like, I'll be like, but on the human level. Like spiritually, I get that you're okay. And on that macro yeah. view and philosophically, you're okay. And here right now in this moment, what are you feeling? That's harder. I think for both genders, but especially for men these days, it's become unsafe to admit that we don't know what's going on. And so I find we're all but choosing isn't that vulnerability. Isn't, wouldn't that not, would that not be rewarded to just be like, you know what? I don't know what's going on. I would like to, I don't know. Like, isn't that rewarded? I think it's, I don't think it's rewarded. I'd be on, oh, maybe I spend okay, too much, tell me more. maybe I spend too much time in the comment sections of what I'm seeing okay. these days, yeah. but I'm not seeing, um, I'm not seeing a freedom of expression and being vulnerable with thoughts and feelings that's being rewarded. 
it's not it's not all it's not all encompassingly being rejected but i could walk through my phone right now and some of the comments on the most mundane post about you know i'm a i'm a single parent and i'm doing the best i can but my partner left me and now i'm all alone that should generate some sort of an empathetic response but i'm seeing responses like you're looking for attention and if you didn't dress that way then it wouldn't be an issue and so this is okay, i'm finding comment but are culture are those like 5 out of a thousand like, are you... I honestly, I wish I could say that it was okay. that minimal, but on any given topic, it's almost got to the point where I'll, I'll have some wine with friends and we'll get lost in the comment thread and we'll say, this is a post about something particular and we can guarantee that it's going to degrade into either a liberal Republican thing, mm-hmm. it's going to turn into a COVID thing, or it's going to turn into a gender pronoun um, Trudeau scenario. Every time on the most mundane topic. How much of those conversations keep coming up because people haven't figured out a unified way of approaching things? Like we keep having the discussion because we haven't figured it out yet. Right. It's like the person who's angry and they keep repeating what they're upset about because they feel like they haven't been heard yet. Right. It's like we we keep revisiting things like rumination is only because you don't have the solution. You don't know what path to take and you keep thinking it through and thinking it through. Right. Like it or hopefully that's the only reason you're cycling is because you haven't figured the way the next step. Right. Right. Or the step out of it. And, and, And to not have those discussions would mean maybe to just stop acknowledging again. Right. We can't forget but we also have to focus on what we where we want to be going. Right. I think that's not just the problem. I think that's the I think that's where I think where I see things stuck in, especially with all the conversations I've had um, on this Palestine Israeli issue, either because it's highly sensitive and personal, but we get so locked in that the desire for a conversation that factors in anything other than what we're that we're we're believing in yeah. is absent and any, any inference mm-hmm. with even some of the most logical people that I know, any inference that perhaps you could see it differently. There's an immediate, very visceral pushback. How do I navigate these kind of conversations? How do I play the middleman? And but, I have to thread a but very, should you play the middleman or should you be having all the discussions to, to look at all of the points of view? Like to me, I want, every piece of information like that was my biggest thing about COVID. I was like, give me all of the information. I want to know all of it. I want to know the ones who don't agree, who agree, who this like, and I want all the data. I want the data. That was my biggest thing. I was like, why, why don't, why do we not have access to the data? But that's because you're an open-minded person and you're open to learning and potentially being wrong. But if you asked anyone, like it's a rare person who would say, I'm not open to learning. Right? I hope that's the case. Maybe I've just become maybe I've just become far too Or cynical. maybe I'm just in my bubble of like 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 I don't know, open-minded. I don't know either. I just want to learn. I just know that as I've been trying to again chart the course for this show, what the intent is to not necessarily take a side or force people to change their mind, but just to bring the rhetoric down to have a conversation. So when I try this out in the comment threads on some hot button topics, if I inject myself in an aggressive, I believe this very firm way, then I know what the response is going to be. It's going to be viscerally hostile back. Mm -hmm. But as I experiment with how do I show in text only that I, I hear you, man, 
right? I, I hear you, bro. I, I hear you, human. But here's my take on it. And I find that like mediation, identifying with the person you're speaking to first and then injecting your own maybe twist is the path to at least getting some and successfully to some degree because I'll actually have conversations and I'll interject with some of the most ridiculous comments that I've seen. And I'll try to do that in that kind of a mediator approach. Like I get what you're coming from. You've got some really salient points, but is this the best way? And because I'm dealing with it from a place of empathy, I think the responses aren't the fuck yous that I used to get mm-hmm. They're Yeah, maybe so. But, and then the dialogue starts because it hasn't been a, screw you, Mm -hmm. screw him kind of conversation. Like I get it with clients all the time when I'm working one-on-one with someone and they're stuck in something, telling them what they might be stuck in and then pointing something else out. Even if politely, I find that can be not as effective as saying, "Have, have you thought about this ideology? Or like, and, and even more, even more contextual, like, you know, someone's really stuck on something and it's like, Hey, what about this? Have you ever thought about that? Right. And they're like, Oh yeah, I used to do that. And when I did that, I would, things were really, mm-hmm. things were better. And they're like, people don't realize that they're shoulder checking so much on, on what they don't want that they don't have their eyes up into the turn, you right. know? Do you, when you, when you say that, that people, um, get stuck. I think we can all relate to being stuck. Yeah. Is there a common thread that drives why and how we get stuck? Like, is there a source for that feeling or that reality that comes from a consistent place for all of us, but we just manage it differently? Okay. I think we can, I haven't completely thought this out. So I'm answering on the fly. So my, my answer may evolve over time. (laughs) Um, But the first things that come to mind are that we get stuck when we repeat things. So sometimes you try on, you see someone who has an, an attitude or an approach to something and you're like, that was effective for them. I'm going to try that out for a little while. And then you try it out for a little while. And then like four years have gone by and it's just become integrated into you. And then you're like, but I don't know if this really fits with me. Right. And it's like something has to happen for you to have like a reality check moment and go, wait a minute, this isn't me. But it is a stuck moment. Right. Like you got stuck in something because it was habit, because you were repeating it. I think that people get stuck in other contexts because they are afraid of the change. They're they're like what they're in isn't great. The moment that they're in doesn't feel great, but they're afraid that of the consequences of what other changes they may bring about. And I think that's a more generalized approach to it. But I also think that it's it's habit it's comfort, it's familiarity, and then it's also fear of the unknown. I think that's so key because that's that vicious cycle concept, right? We get stuck in the worst things, but mm-hmm. they become comfortable, so comfortable that it's more uncomfortable to, to risk stepping out of that. Yeah. And I think that if things aren't changing, if we, ha- if, if we have such structure that there's no newness, like, in my goodness, just walk walk home a different way or drive home a different way or go do something spontaneous that you've never done before and you will be less stuck. Right. Right. Like talk to someone new, say hi to someone like there's just take a class. That reminds me of um, a short story. A number of years ago, I went for a hike during, during the week 
And I came across this hiker. She was from America and we decided to go hiking in the mountains together, which I would not recommend to anyone to just go randomly hiking with strangers. Yeah. Um, But we did. And it turns out that her life approach from being very stuck in a lot of her things, she'd committed herself to having an adventure a week. So every week she would do something that was drastically Mm. different. And so this trip to Vancouver and the hiking in Vancouver was one of those kind of adventure uh, uh, week things. And so I asked her, you do this every week to travel somewhere all, 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 all over the over, over the world? Yeah. She goes, no, no, no. It doesn't. I mean, adventure week doesn't have to be, you know, a trip to a different country. It, it can be, to your point, a walk down the alley. That's different. Trying out yeah. a different food. Make sure that you inject something new to break the cycles yeah. of stuckness, even with the good things. And to this day, when I check up on her, she's done something different. Hugely different, but it could be just, I tried something different on the menu. And I just think it's amazing to just deliberately shake things yeah. up. Yeah. I mean, like, what what is that book? The Artist's Way? Yes. So much of that book is forcing you, it's just questions or challenges or activities to change things up. Yep. To keep the creative juices flowing as opposed, like, and she's created a structure to be unstructured. But again, like, we talked about those human needs at the beginning and it's like, if you don't have variety or change, you get stuck, right? But you could also have chaos and uncertainty, which is the unhealthy form, right? Like we want like stability and certainty and security. We don't want stagnation. We don't want stuck. Do you, right? do you does think that make pre- sense? It does make yeah. sense. But I also, I have to look at myself yeah. because I find it very easy to get stuck. Yeah. And at some point, it goes from being a legitimate reason for being stuck like this show and getting it all off the ground to becoming an excuse because the fear of giving mm-hmm. it a shot is, is so true is worse. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do people ever want you to be on when you don't want to be on like in friends? Oh and, yeah. Tons. You know, like people tons. I'm not working today. I just let me be me. Tons. When people are coming to my class, I have committed to hold a space with energy, with love, with capacity. So I'm on, like my energy is big, it's different, and I'm there. I'm taking care of every single one of those people, whether they know it or not. I think people feel it because they would come back. But I'm also like, I would go around and like chat with every single person for a few seconds right. before the class. And I'm, I'm actually gauging their energy and sensing where they're at and like from their tone of voice and there's facilitation and teaching and they're not quite the same. You can just teach something and not facilitate. For me, I wanted to create an experience for everyone. I don't need to teach meditation, like teach about meditation for you to have the experience of a meditation. I wanted people to be able to mentally, emotionally process and release things in their bodies. So when I'm doing that, I am there to create an experience. I have some idea in my mind of some sort of idea that I'll talk about for a few minutes. And I'll carry it through the class, throughout some of the things, even the music that I would pick, like everything from beginning to that end is so curated Mm -hmm. down to the body parts that you're actually doing and how like certain parts of your body actually associate with certain sort of ideas and emotional challenges so much so that like that's 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 me working and I still think that it wasn't performative like for me that is still like I'm projecting my voice differently but it's not performative 
it is like, that's me being a Sherpa, right? Like I've climbed that mountain so many times I can do that mountain barefoot. And so now my job is to guide you and put all of the intention into my voice in a way that's not performative. However, I am holding a standard in that. And that's the purpose of that, of, of that class. But when I'm just hanging out, I'm not there to teach something. I'm not there to hold space. I'm there to be a human. That doesn't mean that I'm not always kind, that I'm not saying hi to people, that I'm not respectful to people, that I'm not engaging, but I get to be a human too, right? Like I get to be real about how I feel today. When I'm there to teach, how I feel is there, but I'm, I'm bringing out a skill set to hold space for people. Like for, for me in my profession to be able to say, I'm not okay today is so frowned upon. And there's so much of this, like, well, change your state or like, you know, like, what aren't you acknowledging? And like, why isn't your body healing itself? Or like, obviously there's something you're not acknowledging to not heal yourself. And the only way to truly heal anything mentally, emotionally, physically, or otherwise is to acknowledge where you're at right now. And if you don't do that, you're not going anywhere. That is so huge. And again, I, if I just have to look at my own self through yeah. that, that, that yeah. lens, it's all still very future state. I'll get over it. I will get over it. I'll get over it by doing yeah. something else rather than the right now, the right here. Well, and this is the thing, you know, in Buddhism, they teach detachment and allowance and you're detaching from worldly things in the sense that you're, you're, you're acknowledging that the thing happened and you're just allowing it to drift by you. You're allow, allowing yourself to notice that this is what's happening in your life, right? It's that state of like, again, being in your consciousness as you observe what's going on. But I think people practice distraction and avoidance. You know, like, it's like, we, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So, and we have like some beautiful ways to distract and avoid. Like we have like, I think one of the nicest gifts I ever gave to myself was a pro Spotify account with no commercials. <laughs> like, like the gift of access to music, wherein if I listen to something, I'm still supporting the artist feels nice too. Right. But it's like such a beautiful way to distract. And that's not to say that there is music that helps you tap into the emotions on the present moment, but there's also music that you can listen to that can distract you from feeling what you need to feel in the moment to process your life. That is such a, that is such a poignant statement because I am a deep lover of music, mm-hmm. but I use it for two very different things. There yeah. are times when I'm definitely using it and it's usually a particular sound and an approach, but it is to not think at all. It is to distract to the utmost and I know that as I'm doing it, it's toxic. It's not helping me, but it's how I'm coping mm-hmm. versus when I want to reflect the music style is different. It's calmer and I'm committed to my journey. Yeah. Can you put your earbuds in or headphones or whatever you use um, and have them off? Can you have them off. go in your car for a long drive and have no music? Can you sit alone with your own thoughts and emotions and just be present for yourself? I think that, and I've been saying this a lot in the last couple of years, that our lack of empathy with ourselves is the reason that we are not able to hold space for other people. 
and this whole idea of toxic positivity where we're like, don't feel that way. You need to be positive. We're like that. And, and then we feel like people are talking about, well, you need to protect your positivity. You can't let other people bring you down. And while both like, you know, you don't want to be toxically positive and shame other people for not being perfect and happy all the time. But on the other hand, yeah, there's an aspect of, yes, we, we do need to protect ourselves and create a supportive environment for ourselves. And there's a place in between that, that, that is in both worlds where we need to set a standard for ourselves and to be positive. We need to hold space for ourselves to feel what we're feeling, to process what we're processing and to listen to ourselves respectfully first. And if we can listen to ourselves, we fill our own buckets up or we empty out our bucket and then our bucket has room for the other people in our lives, yeah. perhaps. The first thing that comes to my mind, and perhaps this again, this is another, I feel like this is my therapy session. Yeah. Maybe there's something that I'm managing, but the moment that I, or I'm not doing it effectively, but yeah. I still have a difficult time conflating um, giving space for myself yeah. and really sitting in myself and my needs with being self-absorbed and selfish well there's a healthy type of side to narcissism <laughs> being truly narcissistic is to not acknowledge those around you but acknowledging who you are and there's a, there's there's a part of it that's self-full that is self-responsible like i always talk about how when you go to a social event if you feel uncomfortable you can hang out by the buffet table and eat Right. And give, gives you something to do where you stand close to a wall. You try to find one person to talk to or something, something. Right. But you can't do that in the universe. If the universe is infinite, there is no wall or corner to stand by. And if you think about it that way, you each and every single person is the center of the, their own universe. And that is the only way we're able to perceive. And the moment that you acknowledge that that may seem egotistical, but there's healthy ego and the healthy ego is that acknowledgement of this is me in the universe and therefore I'm responsible for me. Now let me clean up what's around me so I can perceive the universe more clearly and I can perceive all the other yeah. lights in the universe more like, clearly. I feel like maybe that's what my friend intended when she, when she made that statement, people need to sit in their own shit before they start worrying about everything else out there. Yeah. And, and then if you can be loving and kind to yourself, because our inner voices, like our inner voices are kind of like dicks. Right? <laughs> like, or as one of my friends said, don't ever say that word again, just call them Richards. And I'm like, I, I don't know. We'll go with dicks. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I don't know. Get, 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 then I'll get some hate messages from right. a bunch of Richards. Um, <laughs> but this idea that we need to... I don't know. I lost it, but like that we need to to change anything or do or like or to not be in your own stuff is performative and to lovingly and respectfully listen to yourself and to get over that dickish voice in your head that you wouldn't keep the, your friends if they talked to you like that. They would be gone so fast. That's actually really true. That's actually really okay. true. The things that we say. Yeah, 100 percent. So. What if you start, what if your, what if your first meditation practice was loving kindness and was to actually listen to that voice and just be like, interesting that you feel that way. Tell me more. 
and just let it say what it needs to say and you be the loving, respectful person instead of don't think that way, don't feel that way. Well, you do feel that way. And the more you tell yourself not to feel that way, the more you're cutting yourself off and being rude. And when people do that to each other in relationships, they fight. If we tell each other don't feel that way, there's going to be a fight. And the feeling comes up stronger with some anger. There isn't a relationship on the planet where when you tell someone don't feel that way, that's that's not a positive conversation. No. And your consciousness, your consciousness, that spark of I think, therefore I am, the I am part of that and your consciousness is the part that's perceiving every thought, subconscious, conscious, every smell, every sound, everything, what's happened in your day, what happened years ago, what ha- like trauma, this, that, or the other. And you're in, co- you're literally in a conversation with your physical body and your mind. Okay. Right. And it's a lot of different pieces to that conversation. And while you're sitting and you're in that silence while you're driving without music or, you know, not listening to a podcast, that is huge. Can you listen to that dialogue without telling it to shut up, without saying, like, literally, when you distract and avoid with TV, with music, with whatever, when you distract and avoid, that's like having someone else sitting next to you saying, hey, this is how I feel right now. And while they're mid-sentence, you're turning on the TV, crossing your arms and being like, actually, just not even saying anything and just watching the show you're watching. That's literally what we do to ourselves. So then how do we expect ourselves to have capacity to deal with anyone else if we can't even deal with ourselves? So why, why are we, why are we so prone to walk away from that? And not, not to go back to the protesting again, but we, that's just, we seem to be latching onto that as our, as our purpose to make a difference in the world by, by, by allying versus allying with ourselves. I believe that it's because as children, our parents told us to get our heads out of the clouds. When something bad happened when we were kids, we came home and we didn't distract necessarily, not in my generation. In my generation, you went up to your room or you found a swing, right? Or teeter-totter and you just sat there alone on the teeter-totter, I don't know, just being like, well, this sucks, right? And you just sat there, like for me, like the swings or looking up at the ceiling. And you just sat in those thoughts and in that emotion of the shitty thing that happened to you and you felt it out and you catastrophized. You went to the worst case scenario and you went back in time to what happened. You played it out. How are you going to handle it when you're going for it? And you just go through all of it. And after a while, you can't do anymore because it's done. And the emotion, you felt it the way you would listen to music in a car. You're like immersed, right? Right. In it, And you felt it. And that emotion is now processed. It's done. Emotions that are not processed, they're neurochemicals, right? So where are they going to go? They store, like the neurons in your body go everywhere. So if you hurt your leg and you're going through something and you don't deal deal with it, now those neurons are in your ankle and and it's not, and for whatever reason, you have some chronic pain down there, right? Like, and you have tense shoulders and you have tense things and you have like, and these things stay in your body. They stay in your shoulders and your gut in your body. And so I think that it is the, that our culture says, get your head out of the clouds, stop daydreaming, get over it, be tougher. And it's not that be tougher and get over it aren't great things. Wallowing doesn't make things better. But we're not taught how to emotionally process. 
We're not taught how to acknowledge things. We're not taught that uncomfortable emotion is something that you can go through because everyone's like, oh, let's protect our children from feeling sad. Right. Let's protect them from feeling any pain. Everyone gets a blue ribbon, you know, like and and that's actually what's lending towards what I believe is a, a, a new form of like wide, like, you know, widely um, narcissistic behavior and traits in society. And so is is that where the relearning of that begins? Is it back at home with our parents? You say that we've we, we've forgotten how to do that. Parents and society. Because you get it from school, you get it from teachers, you get it from every grown up in your life, really. You get it from older siblings. Grow up, right? Yeah. I, I don't know how much of it is just our parents and teachers and how much of it is also just wanting to grow up. Like, are you ever going to get a little girl who doesn't want to be a grown woman and then a woman who's like, God, I wish I'd enjoyed being a little girl. Right. You know? Yeah. Here's the thing. How do you really know what's going on down there? I mean, we can say we know. We can say we know. But you and I, you know from, from your work that this, this much shows just this much. Right? Yeah. That's all it shows. Your, your place is very clean, but I, I could maybe find one spot that's not and just show <laughs> that spot. And then and that's the only spot you're going to see. And I'm not saying that that's specific to what's going on right now. But I just think that we need to be curious, we need to gather information, and we need to approach things as though we do not know, right? Like even just in goal setting, that happens. Like couples have kids and I see them now struggling to take care of all the things and they stop dreaming together. They stop thinking about what they want. Having children wasn't the only dream. It was part of the dream. Right. Right. And they lose sight of that because they're just too busy putting out fires. I think not that's this, a, not this, not that. Right. I think that's a, that's a, that's an amazing takeaway. It's just to be curious, set a goal to just be curious, start asking the difficult questions. And sometimes I don't think the questions have to be that difficult. It's just getting into the habit of asking a question. And a willingness to look at yourself and your own rigidity. Why am I so stuck on this? Why does this mean so much to me? And you may find more strength of conviction and that's okay. Right. But when we have true strength of conviction, I think it's easier to be like, well, I, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it. I want to understand why you believe what you believe. Because if you say this is what I believe and this is why I believe it, and you're coming from a value-based place, people will be like, well, I actually understand what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know? There's, it's, yeah. It doesn't mean that we have to align with it, but that's that's... That's that's the, that's the whole point. It's about yeah. humanizing the people with which with whom you have conflict to the point where at least you can have that conversation. Dehumanization never, never helps no. anything. But to your point, we're abundantly good at it. This bullying culture. I, I, I wanted to do a piece at some point um, to just characterize how when you and I were raised, mm -hmm. bullying was the, was this abhorrent thing that you did not do. It was only relegated to the schoolyard and that's it was just you didn't do it but now when i look at the celebrities that i endorse that i appreciate yeah. like the Fallons <laughs> of the world it's a bullying culture that generates revenue oh, and likes bullying has been going on forever it's just been subtle right 
workplace bullying is has been going on forever. Bullying in general, it's just been going on forever. But has it been normalized to the degree that it's been normalized? I think it's normalized now. I think now more than ever, you can call out bullying in the workplace. And I think that in the past, you couldn't. I don't think school schoolyard bullying has changed. No. Kids just find subtler and subtler ways to be mean. And, and now we have the, the venue of social media, right? So everyone's learned that... Wow, Jimmy Fallon put out this post where he slammed this person and, and mocked whatever, whoever else it is. And then we're all kind of following suit. I feel like there's a lack of leadership in the folks that we're propping up our children to look up to mm-hmm. um, in, in establishing some sense of fair play. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. I, I also look at, I look at all the TV shows, okay? Because I think we are so moved by stories. We are, we're like... Whether we learn from books now or our mothers, we were taught, we, we are educated by stories. Even our experiences are stories that we create in our minds and how each person edits the story or what it means or the moral of the story is, is the way they step out of that story and how they move forward into their next story. And so I look at television shows and you cannot find a show that's not post-apocalyptic or or like sci-fi based in some way, some post-apocalyptic future. And also all the leads are these people or characters that murder and kill and hurt others. And we're made to understand them. And we're creating all of this empathy for these narcissistic, cruel people who are not actually living up to things. And there are some heroes that do, but I think, you know, I think that's why, the comic book heroes are so are so loved, but I think when I when I watch some of these shows, I'm I, I'm a little perturbed by the actual um, glorification of of like some of these shows, some like horrible things. What's yeah. that show? Like um, one of my nieces is really into the Vampire Diaries right now. Okay. It's an older show, and I started watching it, and the two lead characters they've just killed so many people because they were upset or they were jealous and they just murdered these people and now they're still the lead and it's like well i did it because i loved you now we're gonna make make out about it i'm like what is happening (laughs) i'm like how is this okay i mean it's like and i know it's a fantasy but it's but it normalizes it to the mind of a a younger person 100 like and so this desensitization through media and culture and it's like I don't know. I'm like, why are and like Game of Thrones? Like, why are our stories becoming more and more twisted because we want to be surprised? You know, like we're just getting a little bit darker and darker in things. And I mean, I'm all for creativity, but I'm also like, is morality so boring? (laughs) It's like kindness so boring is like I'm not saying that you can't have a villain. But then do we, we, we're supposed to love our villains now right. and we're supposed to like. That's the thing. The, avoid, like the and good that everyone's cop, human, I guess. The good cop, bad cop and the good guy and bad guy used to be very clearly defined mm-hmm. roles. I mean, we're talking about 60s programming and mm-hmm. you did not like the villain in the Batman yeah. episodes. Mm-hmm. Now it's now we pay to see the villain. Right? I, was, mm-hmm. I, I, I read a stat somewhere that said that in the previous two Batmans, um, the percentage of people that went to see. Um, Bane or the latest bad guy was infinitely more than anyone that wanted to see Christian Bale play Batman. We didn't go to see mm. the Batman. We went to see the villain, Joaquin Phoenix playing that evil role or yeah, 
we celebrate the bad. So it's no wonder that we're reflecting that online. Yeah. And maybe there's an aspect to understanding that everyone has a journey. I also just think that there's, there's like, I don't know, it's a gray area. Yeah, yeah. It's a gray area I wonder about. But on the topic of books, mm-hmm. you have your existing book that's been yes. out for how many years now? It's seven years. Seven years. And I think you told me today that you printed 20,000 initial copies. In two runs, yeah. In two runs. In two runs. Yeah. What's next for you? So I need to take some time off and f- finalize the edits on the other ones because they're all drafted. I have, right. I have about four, five more books that are drafted. What's the area of focus? Can, um, you, can you give us some hints? There are two that are meditation-based. Um, just because the way I talk about meditation has evolved and I teach it, I think I teach it in a more efficient, even more efficient way than the other way. Interesting. So you've evolved how to cheat at meditation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I have a couple of I have a couple of books like that. One I'm just going to give away for free, and one I'll, I'll give away for almost free. <laughs> and then I've got a sleep book and a happiness book and a life book. So there's a few, and and a book on spirituality too because I haven't really I've never really written about spirituality. I've kind of kept that personal. Partially because I wanted to give what I believe is a neurological skill set for self-management to people. That's why I that's why I push meditation so much in every talk that I do. I talk about all kinds of things, but people know me as the meditation person because I think it is the place where you get perspective. And the more comfortable you can get in being with yourself the more control you have over yourself. Right. And your, your area of expertise is in neurophysics, isn't it? Um, it's in psychology. It's in psychology. But I was I started meditating over 40 years ago. Was that even a thing 40 years ago? In my, in my community, it was. Right. So in my community, we have a Sufi tradition of 4 a.m. meditation. And so I went when I was, I was just a wee thing. Right. And I had such a profound experience with no guidance. No one told me what to do. In fact, I think my mom handed me prayer beads and was like, here, just take these and, <laughs> and say this. And I was like, and I just innately felt like she was wrong. Right. Like I didn't know. But on the inside, I was like, no. And I just closed my eyes and I kind of just asked the universe. And that's how I had my first meditation. And it was beautiful. And it, it worked was, the first time out of the gate? It, it didn't work. It just was. See, I sat and I just said, what do I do? And there's like, like, it was like a corridor appeared in my mind and it got really narrow and the rest beyond the corridor was the universe. And, and it was just like from me to the universe and all my little thoughts came out and stayed in the corridor and I thought about them and, and then they dissipated. I know that you've, you've spoken um, often about how people find meditation challenging because they can't turn off all the thoughts. And I think, I think I heard you say one of the recent ones is who the fuck said you had to turn off all of your, (laughs) all all of your thoughts. So how did you manage to compartmentalize at such an early age? I didn't. Okay. They just happened. The thoughts came, the thoughts came forward, saw the thoughts. I mean, I was a kid, so I didn't have a lot of thoughts. My thought was like, my brother was really mean to me. (laughs) Like, you know, what about that? Or like, you know, I was, I was like, or like that book that I read or like, you know, and so 
yeah, the thoughts just came out. I acknowledged them. And, and even as a child, you're actually quite systematic. You're like, what can I control? What can I do something about? And what can I not let it go? <laughs> Next thought, same thing. Next right. thought, same thing. Yeah. And it wasn't like I even knew that I was following a system, but I knew that I, like, I can remember the system that I had, which is strange because I wasn't conscious of it. It just happened. And then there were no thoughts for a little while because I let them happen because I didn't fight the thoughts. And then I had peace for a little bit. And the corridors dissolved away and it was just me and the universe. That's, that's such and an, it was an, beautiful. That's such an analogy to what you mentioned earlier, right? Just take the time to focus on yourself in your space now and the rest yeah. of it will work yeah. itself out. What if you just gave yourself permission to just notice whatever you noticed, to be aware of whatever you are aware of in the moment, even if it is an itch on the nose, even if it is the sound of the wind outside, yeah. you know, like why, why are we, you know, we're so good at being disciplined. We're not great at listening to the creative flow of our own mind. Yeah. Being and, curious. Right. The kids are. Kids are. That's why they're resilient. That's why they learn more. They're in touch with their emotions. That's why they engage more easily. Well, I thank you for engaging with us here today. Yeah. Thank you for coming by. Thanks um, for having me. I hope that we all gain some insight. And I just love, I love the idea of being curious. I mean, you're creative, I'm creative, you know that. But yeah. when I think about the conversations that I have trouble with with other folks, just be curious. Yeah. Find the bravery, I guess, to ask the, the question. Know that you might get a no and answer you don't like, but yeah. get into the cadence of being curious. I think so. I love be it. curious and be kind to yourself when you, when you have a dialogue with yourself. That's going to start that habit everywhere. Rosanna, thank you yeah. so much. Thanks for having me. You're amazing. This episode of Are We Done Yet? is brought to you by Rob Anthony Productions and is part of the Oh Hey TV network. Guest and audience statements have not been fact-checked or verified and do not necessarily reflect the thoughts and opinions of the show or the network. To learn more about Oh Hey TV and how to be a guest on one of our shows, visit ohey.tv.